Um, I'm, I'm excited for this morning, the rest of the day. We're, we're, we're kind of kicking off finally the book of Acts. So if you have your Bible with you and you haven't already turned there, why don't you be turning to Acts chapter 1. We, we started this introduction uh, to this series a couple weeks ago, but this is really the first week that we'll be getting in um, into the into the verses, into chapter 1. And so I'm excited about that. We're going to be doing the Lord's Supper as this probably clued you in, if you didn't know, uh, by the end of the service. And so we got to see baptisms. We we're doing the Lord's service, both ordinances of the church. Um, so it is a good day. But like I said, we did an introduction to this book a couple weeks ago. We tried to lay a foundation for you and let you know kind of where we're going specifically in this study. So I, I took the time to describe the position of the book, the, the specific location in the canon of Scripture, right after the Gospels and right before the Pauline epistles. And that has some, some particular meaning for that. I showed you that that makes Acts primarily a history book, not a doctrinal book for the church. It, it simply tells us what those apostles did. That is the name of the book, the Acts of the apostles, and so it tells us what they did, not necessarily what we are to do. And additionally, that position is important because it means the book of Acts transitions us from an Old Testament economy into the New Testament, from the Jew to the Gentile, from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, from an entirely Jewish New Testament church in Jerusalem into the Gentile church, the bride of Christ throughout the world. I'll obviously show you more of that as we move through this book, but it's, it's important, very important to know that Acts is a transition book, and because it's a transition book, we have to be very careful in how we interpret it. If we apply, apply it all to the church, we get in real trouble very quickly. Then we talked about a few of the key players in the book, including the author Luke, who, who by the way, in that intro message, I said... Was Luke was one of the 12 original apostles of Jesus. That is not true. Um, he was not one of the original 12. You know, and I actually knew that when I said it, but sometimes when you speak in public long enough, you say weird things. As soon as I said it, I started having this conversation in my head. I was like, wait, wait, what, wait, what did you just say? And then I'm trying to continue preaching. And so I'm running, I'm like, did you, did you say that? And then, and then I because I was trying to continue preaching, I didn't even know what I said, so I just kept going. But I went back, I looked at the video afterwards, I did say it. It's not true, please forgive me for that. But he was a key, he's a key player. He's, Luke was the man that was key in detailing for us the life of Jesus in his gospel and, and the lives of Peter and Paul through the book of Acts. And they were the other key players of this book that we discussed. Peter is the leading figure when the focus is more Jewish. In the early part of the book, and Paul becomes a leading figure when the focus shifts more to the Gentiles in the second half of the book. And then we also spent some time talking about their passion, what it was that drove these guys to literally give their lives to and for the cause of Christ. And they, they all, they were, you know, they're martyrs, and they're, they're giving their life to this cause of who Jesus was and what his message was. And in doing so, it literally turned the world upside down. Acts 17, 6 says it changed the world. The world has never been the same. And, and that's really where we are going practically in the series. We're going to take a, you know, a mostly devotional look. We'll be hitting and, and, and pointing out some of the doctrine, but we're going to take a more devotional look, trying to be encouraged and challenged by the passion for the mission that those apostles and those first century Christians displayed. You see, they had something that we need. And it started with them understanding and getting a true grasp of the call 
and the importance of call, what they were doing, what they made their life about. Because as we enter the book of Acts, we see Jesus pass the proverbial baton to his apostles. And we get to watch them take it and run with it. And they didn't drop it. They didn't get tired and quit the race. No, they charged forward in a way that turned the world upside down. And it gives us the title for today's message, which is Passing the Baton. And what I want you to know this morning is that is a race that is still being ran, at least by some. So let me ask you, is it, is it being ran by you? Are you part of the mission that Jesus passed on? Hebrews 12.1 gives us that admonition, popular verse. It says, Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, the course that we have for this life. Paul said in Philippians 2.16, Holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. And that is my desire as well. I hope it is yours. It's certainly my desire for you and for this church. But it's only going to end up that way if we understand what it is that has been passed on even to us. Do you understand the importance of our mission? Because it, it, in many respects, it comes down to that very fact. It comes down to our understanding and our perspective of what it is that we have been called to do. It reminds me of a story, a group of Masons building a, a brick mansion for a former governor in this town. It was going to be the biggest house ever built in this particular town. So reporters, the local newspaper is doing a story on the job. And he goes to the job site to interview some of the workers. And, and he asks them all the same question. It's very simply this. What is it that you're doing here? And he goes to the first bricklayer, the first Mason, and he says, well, you know, what is it? What is it that you're doing here? And he said, Man, can't you see? I'm just laying a brick. Can't you see what I'm doing? Like, I got the mortar. I'm not a bricklayer, but I'm pretty sure I've had mortar and I got the brick. I'm laying a brick. Like, this is, this is obvious. And then he moved to the next guy down the line and he asked him the same question What is it that you're doing here? And he's like, You know what? I'm just earning a living. I'm just trying to get a paycheck. And so that's, that, that's what I'm doing. And he moved to the third guy and he asked him that same question. What is it that you're doing here? And the third guy answered enthusiastically, I am working for my favorite governor, building the biggest mansion this town has ever seen. You see, it all depends on your perspective, doesn't it? They were all doing the exact same thing, but they all viewed it very differently. And I wonder sometimes if as Christians we really understand what it is that we're doing here. I think for some Christians, the, the Christian walk, the Christian life is, is not exciting at all. And they're just kind of filling time. And I think for other Christians, they're, they're kind of like, well, man, I, you know, I, I want to do something for a reward. I, even if that reward is in this life. I think most of the times we're not even thinking necessarily about the life to come. But, and if I do right, maybe God will, maybe God will push something my way. And, and that's, that's not the motive that God's after. What we need to understand is the Christian life is all about helping the Lord Jesus Christ finish the work of building his kingdom that he began and he passed on initially to those apostles and then later to the church. Because in Acts, that's what we see. 
We see that passing of the baton right here at the beginning of the book. So let's look at it together. We're just going to get started this morning. And, and again, we're, there's so much even in the few verses we're going to cover that, that, that we're going to not be able to get into. But, but, but we're going to get started. We're going to look at the first five verses of Acts chapter 1. And there we read, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, till the day in which he was taken up. After that, he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, Ye have heard of me, for John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. All right, let's pray. Let's go to the Lord and ask him to, to teach us something this morning and change our lives in the process. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for what we've already seen today, the folks um, aligning their life with you and, and in, in, in the ordinance of baptism and just recognizing that they uh, are now a child of yours and, and wanting to be that testimony. And Lord, as we prepare our hearts and minds today for what's to come in the Lord's Supper, Lord, I pray you use your word to penetrate our heart and and do the work that only it can do to change us and mold us more and more into your image. Lord, thank you for the opportunity we have to meet here today as a body, as a family, um, with, with hopefully one mind and, and, and one common mission. And Lord, so bring us together on that same page. And, and Lord, I pray that everything that is said today is true to your word. And I pray that it is honoring and glorifying to you. And we ask this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay, so as we just read, things are off and running. And here at the beginning of the book of Acts, we find ourselves immediately before Christ's ascension. And according to verse 3, that was 40 days after the resurrection. But Jesus' stay on earth is coming to an end. We actually will see Christ's ascension next Sunday when we get to verse 9. But before he left this earth to sit at the right hand of his father and await his return, he officially, you know, turns things over. He turns his ministry, so to speak, over to his apostles, his disciples. We'll see more detail of this next week in verse 8. That's the, the key verse of this book. So again, Christ is passing the baton, baton because there was more work to be done. Listen, the work that Jesus did on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice for sin, that work was finished, according to John 19.30. But the work of getting that message to the world was just beginning. So in the passing of the baton, what we see in our first point is Jesus gives responsibility. Jesus gives responsibility. He makes those apostles responsible for what he had taught them and showed them while he was physically with them. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. There's some very interesting language in here. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. So as we know, the former treatise is Luke's gospel. That means the gospel of Luke tells us what Jesus began both to do and teach. You see, Jesus started something. It says he began to do some things. And he began to teach some things. And he did that all the way until his ascension, or as verse 2 says, until the day in which he was taken up. And after that, 
what we are going to see and, and what he describes here in verse 2 is the Holy Ghost becomes a teacher and the apostles become the doers. So here's what this means, and this is on your outline sheet. The Gospel of Luke records what Jesus began both to do and teach in his human body. But the book of Acts tells us what Jesus continued to do and teach through his spiritual body. First through the apostles and later through the church. Jesus taught his disciples and showed his disciples what they were to do when he was gone. It was one of the primary works of Jesus while he was on this earth. When praying to his father in John 17, Jesus said this in verses 6 through 8, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they've kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came from thee. And they have believed that thou didst send me. And Jesus says in that context that he's finished that work. Obviously, that wasn't the work on the cross. That was the work of the preparation of those disciples to take the baton and run with it. So he was constantly teaching them about himself and, and what they were to do and what they were to believe once he was gone. But as Acts 1.1 tells us, he didn't just teach them God's word. He also showed them how to do it. He was the perfect example John 13, 15 says, and this is Jesus speaking, For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. And Peter remembered that example because in his first epistle, in chapter 2 and verse 21, he wrote, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. And listen, this right here is the very essence of what we know as discipleship. It's what Jesus did with his disciples. This is part of the command of 2 Timothy 2.2, one of our key verses for discipleship, and the things which thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. And while that's a great discipleship verse, one we use all the time in that context, when you compare it to Acts 1, verses 1 and 2, it's incomplete. It covers the teaching, but we can't leave out the doing. And by the way, Paul didn't leave it out either. You just have to keep reading in 2 Timothy. Because in 2 Timothy 3.10, Paul tells Timothy, But thou hast fully known, fully known what? My doctrine, manner of life, purpose. Faith, long-suffering, charity, and patience. And he goes on to talk about his afflictions and the persecution that he faced. So it wasn't only that, that, that Paul only taught Timothy. He certainly did that. He made sure that Timothy was fully aware of his doctrine. He taught him that. But he also shared with Timothy his manner of life. How he went about it. His purpose. Why he was doing it how to live out faith, how to be long-suffering and show charity and patience toward others. And, and please listen to me, especially if you are one of our disciplers here, part of our discipleship ministry. That is absolutely a necessary and biblical component of discipleship. 
And if the only thing, if all you are doing is teaching another person a set of lessons, then you're doing it wrong. And you're not discipling. You may be teaching, but you're not discipling. A disciple is a learner and a follower. A learner and a follower. So if you're discipling, are you showing them where to go? Or are you just telling them? Are you showing them how to do it? Or are you telling them? Are you showing them how to evangelize? Or are you just telling them that they need to do something that, quite honestly, maybe you don't do? When Moses was struggling to help the children of Israel deal with their problems in the wilderness, he got some advice from his father-in-law. And part of his advice gives us a great definition of this principle, what true discipleship really looks like. It's in Exodus 18.20. And it says, And thou shalt teach them ordinances and laws. There's things they need to be taught. But that's not all. Thou shalt teach them ordinances and laws, and shalt show them the way wherein they must walk and the work that they must do. Are you walking the walk? Are you in the work? Because you can't show them if you're not. That is discipleship. That was Jesus' model for his apostles, and that is Paul's model for us. With Paul, we see it throughout his ministry. Paul was always looking for people to not only teach, but to invest his life into. One example of that is a couple named Aquila and Priscilla. He initiates a relationship with them in Acts chapter 18, and look at what it says in verses 1 through 3. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth and found, he found, he, he was on the look. He found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome, and came unto them. Because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. And there's a lot in there about how Paul was able to connect with this couple, right? He found a, something like in their life. They were, they were all tent makers. And so he uses that to build a relationship with them. And after Paul finds this couple, what does he do? He moves in with them. Whew, I mean, that, that's a commitment right there. I mean, listen, I, I mean, we're going to let Paul be Paul on this one, I think, but but, but the point is he shares his life with them in a very intimate way, and he disciples them. And we know that he disciples them because later in Acts chapter 18, they go with him to Syria. And we find them again in Romans 16 where Paul calls them his helpers in Christ Jesus. You see him again in 1 Corinthians 16 where he's calling them out by name. And that came about because Paul was not only willing to teach them, but he was willing to show them and walk with them and take them where he ministered. You see, this is a very important aspect of discipleship, and I put it on your outline sheet. You could never truly impact anyone if you will only allow your life to be viewed from a distance. You're never going to have a true impact that a, discipler, a biblical discipler requires. If you only allow your life to be viewed from a distance. And that's because discipleship is helping another person carry out the Christian life in the context of the Word of God. But not just teaching them the Bible. It's more than that. It's an informal, behind-the-scenes investment of the Word of God and your life into the life of another person. But that begs a very important question. 
Is what is in you and in your life worth investing into someone else? Is the way you live your life, is the way you walk and the work you do worth sharing? Those are questions we all have to ask ourselves, myself included. But that is biblical discipleship. And when it comes to New Testament Christianity, that is our responsibility. We're to make disciples by being authentic disciples and disciplers. And listen, discipleship is something that we are going to give added emphasis to this year. We're going to look at how we're doing it and we're going to give it more oversight because it's our mission. And we have to get it right. And it was the mission of Jesus' apostles as well. Now, they weren't going to the Gentiles. They were focused on the Jews in Jerusalem, and they even had a different message. We'll get into that in the coming weeks. But the mission was still to teach and to show, to continue what Jesus began. And that passing of the baton didn't come with just a pat on the back and a good luck wish from Jesus. You know, here you go. See you guys. I hope it works out for you. No, it came with everything needed to get the job done. And that's always been the goal, by the way, to get the job done to God's glory. That's why Paul said in Acts 20, 24, but none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. It was his goal to finish the job, the course, the ministry that God had given him specifically and of course he did. We know that from 2 Timothy 4.7. So that means it's possible in your life and in mine. And it's possible because point number two, Jesus not only gives responsibility, but Jesus gives resourcing. He gives us the resources and able to accomplish the mission. And we see that resourcing here in Acts chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. So look there with me again. So he's, he, he, he is giving them, he's passing on, passing the baton, all that he began and he's, to these apostles. In verse 3, to whom he also showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. And he had told them already. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. So the apostles, what these verses tell us, the apostles, they received some resources from Jesus in order to accomplish the mission. And the resourcing was threefold. And it starts with proof. The first resource he gave them was proof. Proof that he absolutely was who he claimed to be. The Bible says he showed himself alive after his passion. And the word passion there, it doesn't mean desire or lust or the ways that we commonly use it today. But the word, that word for passion is used 42 times in scriptures. This is the only time it's translated passion. It's translated suffer 39 times, vexed one time, and feel one time. And that gives us a little bit of insight. The passion was in him suffering to be vexed for us. The passion of Christ was his death on the cross. And he showed himself alive after his death. Not, not an everyday occurrence, but he did it. He showed himself alive after his death by many infallible proofs. 
And I want you to just look at those words. First of all, there were many, many proofs. Not just one, not just a couple. There were many, over many days. The Bible says he was seen of them 40 days. For over a month, the risen Lord was with them, here and there, appearing and reappearing. Listen, that right there is a game changer. And it's no coincidence that it was 40 days, because 40 in the Bible is the number of testing. It rained on Noah for 40 days. Moses was in the mount 40 days. Israel was in the wilderness 40 years. Christ was tempted 40 days in the wilderness. So listen, the truth of Christ's resurrection was tested over 40 days. The truth of Christ's resurrection was tested over 40 days. Folks got 40 days to check it out, to kick the tires, to test him and see if it was true. And of course, it absolutely was. He passed the test by many proofs. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8, gives us a nice summary of those many proofs. Paul said, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain this present, but some are fallen asleep, some have died, but there's many. You can ask them. Many of them are still out there. Go talk to them. Verse 7, after that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. In fact, by, by my count, there are 12 recorded appearances of Jesus after his resurrection, 10 of which occurred in his ascension. I listed them there on your outline sheet. Now, let me, they, they, I might have missed one, or I might not be 100% correct, but I, but I checked it out, and this is the list that I came up with. And so I just, we're not going to take the time to go through them, but you have them there for your own study. If you find another one, let me know. I'll, I'll add it to my list. But I found 12, with the only two not being, um, but being after his ascension with Stephen and his martyrdom. He was actually still in heaven, but, but Stephen saw him. And then Paul saw him on the road to Damascus. And listen, his appearances dramatically changed those who saw him. And we talked about that last week. And it was proof positive that Jesus was God and had come to reconcile the world back to himself. And so there were many, many proofs. But look at the other word used in that sentence. There were many infallible proofs. And infallible means without error. It means certain. It was undeniable that it was him. And it's worth noting that, that, that most of the modern translations today don't use the word infallible. Most of them remove it completely. So the ESV, for example, and many others just take it out and says many proofs. The NIV says many convincing proofs. And while that may be a little bit better, convincing isn't infallible. And the reason why this occurs is because they don't believe in an infallible Christ or in certainly an infallible word of Christ. And what they believe works their way into their translation, but that's another sermon. But the point here is that God resourced his apostles with proof that he was true and that he was the Messiah. And God resources us as well. We can know that he is true from the testimony of these men that we just read. 
in his word. We can know the word is true because it says it is. It is self-attesting. We can know that it's true because of the many, many prophecies. It's in the, the, the prophecies of, of the first coming alone. There's many more for the second coming, but the, the prophecies for the first coming alone that then occurred is statistically impossible. I mean, that proves the Bible is true. Everywhere you turn, the Bible proves itself to be true over and over and over again. God has resourced us with proof after proof that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man cometh unto the Father but by him. And therefore, we should follow him with our life. What more do you need? How else does he need to prove himself to you? But not only did God resource those apostles with proof, he also resourced them with personal training. You see, not only was he appearing from place to place, he was also teaching. This is even this is after his, his death and resurrection. He's still teaching them. Verse 3 says he was speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And it is worthy of note that he was speaking of the kingdom of God here and not the kingdom of heaven. And it's sort of interesting because we're still in a Jewish time. We're still where the focus is Jewish, the focus is Jerusalem, and yet he's speaking of the things of kingdom of God. Well, why is that? Well, from a doctrinal perspective, it's because he's foreshadowing, he's pointing to the millennium when the spiritual kingdom of God will appear in conjunction with the literal physical restoration of Israel. But beyond that, he's focusing them on the spiritual side of the mission, the spiritual righteousness required for the mission. Romans 14, 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Now we're going to learn next week that they're still struggling to get it. And they're still solely focused on the physical. And there's an absolutely reason why we'll talk about that. But God was trying to bring them around to the spiritual. Because when he is king, both of those kingdoms will be present. That's what we'll see in the millennium. So he spent time teaching them. He, he spent time personally training them. E, again, even after his death and resurrection. We talked about this some last week and looked at some verses in Luke 24, but they're worthy of, of reading again. Luke 24, verses 44 through 48. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then he opened their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in the name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are the witnesses of these things. And we talked about that some last week, how, man, this not only was the proof of the resurrection a game changer, but having their eyes open to, to the this Old Testament and how it was all pointing to him, man, that was a game changer too, and they were never the same. But listen, we have the same thing available to us. We actually have a completed Bible. They didn't. And we have personal training through this book. It's complete. It's perfect. And if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Ghost indwelling you to teach you. It's one of his jobs, just like Jesus was teaching them. And, and when, they, when he was teaching them here in Acts chapter 1, they still did not have an indwelling Holy Spirit. So if we have all of it. Full Bible, the Holy Ghost in us. And if we study to show ourselves approved, we can know it. And we can tell others what it says and what it means to them. 
Paul said this was his expectation for Christians in Rome. Romans 15, 14 says, And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to admonish one another. It doesn't always have to come from me. You all should be able to do this. You see, you should be able to help people see Jesus in their situation. But you have to learn. And if you don't learn, you can't fulfill the mission, not fully. So from a very practical perspective, take advantage of the personal training opportunities that we give you here. You have resources here that are not available everywhere. And I don't say that to toot our own horn. That is just the truth. But there is one more resource Jesus gave to his apostles, and it wouldn't actually come until the next chapter. But he promises it to them in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye also shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days. So that third resource is the Holy Ghost, and that is the power. This is the power through which they are to fulfill the mission. We know it's the power because verse 8 says, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. In Luke 24, 49, and he said, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. That's the, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. But tarry ye, ye, ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. And again, through that power, these guys turned the world upside down. But listen, we have that same power too. So why aren't we? And we should be killing it for the Lord. But for some reason, that's not always the case. And I think the missing ingredient for most churches and most believers today is this, is the working of the Holy Spirit. And the fact is, without the power of the Holy Spirit, it's impossible to be that good witness that Luke 24 and Acts 1-8 calls us to be. If you try to serve the Lord in your own power, it's not going to work. And we've got to get this piece right. You know, Warren Wearsby once said, the hindrance to evangelism isn't the sinner, it's the saint. And this is what he was talking about. You see, we aren't good witnesses when we're not being led by the Holy Spirit. We're not walking in the Spirit. And our life represents something else other than what Christ has done for us. And listen to me, First Baptist Church, we can't miss this point. And whatever we do, we have to do it through the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Because all throughout church history, whenever there's been a movement of the Holy Spirit within a church or within a town, whatever it might be, man, there's always been a, then a great gathering of souls. There's always been great evangelism and great growth to follow. And evangelism is what will grow our church. That is the proper way to grow a church. But evangelism has to follow the movement of the Holy Spirit. See, whenever the Spirit of God goes to work in a church body, the result can be felt. You can just sense the momentum. It's, you know, some people call it revival, whatever. But the result of that, the result of the Holy Spirit working and people grabbing a hold of, of what it is that God wants to do and catching the vision, right? the result of that is evangelism. When people get excited about the mission. It's not the other way around. I know this may sound weird to some of you, but if we try to use evangelism to bring about revival, it won't work. 
If we try to manufacture programs and methods for outreach and missions and evangelism but aren't being led by the Spirit, not walking in the Spirit and our life doesn't represent Christ, man, what good is that? But man, when we are led by the Holy Spirit, even if we're just stumbling around, we're going to fall backwards into something good. Listen, we don't know what we're doing, but man, we're going to work at it. We're going to try. We're going to follow. We're going to grab on to what God has, and we're going to follow his spirit, and we're just going to get to work. And we're going to see God do something. And that's awesome. There is nothing better than that. When you're in the middle of God moving, and you just know it, and you just sense it, and you just see it, and your life represents it. There's nothing better than that. There is no excitement like that. Listen, some of you may be unaware, but, but the Kansas City Chiefs are playing in the Super Bowl later today. I mean, it's like, you know, it's three out of four years. Not, whatever, no big deal. But, but if they win, I'm going to be pretty excited. Okay, truth be told, I'll be pretty excited. You can ask Addie Steed. She was in my house when the Chiefs beat the Bengals. In the AFC Championship game, I was pretty excited. Actually, you cannot ask her. I told her that she was not able, to, not allowed to share what she saw um, <laughs> that night. So you can't, Addie, you can't say anything still. You can't ask her. But anyway, I'll be excited. But listen, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart. That is nothing like the excitement that comes from knowing that you are in the midst of God working and the Holy Spirit moving. Man, I want that here in this place more than anything. I will trade it. Listen, God is my witness. I will trade a chief Super Bowl in a second for that. And I mean it. And the resources are available. We just need to take advantage of them. And it's cool how God lays it all out because the resources are proof. Proof in the people that, he, that saw him in his personal training and in the power. And what is that? It's the people of God. The Word of God and the Spirit of God. And guess what? That is how God always resources everything. But if you're not here, if you're not in His Word, if you're quenching the Spirit in your life, then you won't finish the job. And you will not be a part of turning the world upside down. So let's make sure that doesn't happen. Let's make sure we're in the right place with the people of God and the Word of God and the Spirit of God all working together. Because we definitely have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to each other as members of this body. And we have a responsibility to the lost world to tell them about a Savior that loved them enough to die for them, to take away their sins so they can have a right relationship with Almighty God. And what a privilege that is. Both the relationship and the responsibility. And certainly a privilege we should never forget and never take for granted. And to help us with that, we're going to end this service by taking part in the Lord's Supper together so that we don't forget. And the Lord's Supper is about that relationship. It is about that responsibility and centering our mind on it, centering our mind in thanksgiving to Him. And to properly center them, I want to go to Paul's instruction of the Lord's Supper, found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 31. There Paul says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. 
Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are wick and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. You see, if we want to look forward to all that we anticipate God doing in and through, through us, if we want to look ahead to turning New Philadelphia upside down, to turning Dover upside down, to turning Africa upside down, to turning Hungary upside down, then first we have to look back. We must look back and remember where we came from, and that remembrance should naturally lead to reflection and examination, an examination of where you are at with the Lord today in this moment. So have you taken that baton? Are you running the race for his glory? Or have you taken for granted all that he did? Are you thankful for that sacrifice and willing to live your life out in thanksgiving? Or, truth be told, are you, are you in sin and not living that life at all? If so, you need to get right with him. And this ordinance is to keep this body focused where we need to be focused. It's meant to help believers in Christ Stay focused on Him in the midst of a very distracting world. So if there was a time in your life where you saw that you were a sinner and you decided to trust Jesus for eternal life and you prayed and asked God to save you, and you're old enough and understand enough to examine yourself in the faith, then you're welcome to partake in this communion with us, whether you happen to be a member of this church or not. Now, if you don't meet those requirements, this, honestly, this ordinance is not for you. And I mean, if you... If you take it, it's okay, nothing will happen, but that's the point. Nothing will happen. It doesn't have the same significance for you that God intends. But if you are saved, then this is the ordinance Jesus uses to get us to remember the fact that our life is all about him, is sustained by him, that he is our sustenance and he is our sufficiency. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him, but, but you do have to trust in him. And if you don't, and you're not trusting him, why don't you start today? At this time, I'd like to ask the worship team to come up, and the men who are serving Lord's Supper, please go ahead and come up and, and get lined up. And once you guys are, are all settled, um, please just go out and serve. So the men will be moving through the, the congregation, be moving through the auditorium, and they'll be serving you, so, so receive that cup. But after, after you receive it, please hold on to it until I give further instruction. I will tell you when to eat and, and when to partake and so that we can take the bread and the juice as one in an expression of our unity in Christ together. But this time now, as the men are moving throughout, this is also your time for personal examination, personal confession to the Lord. So take this time, and if there's something you need to get right with Him, get right with Him now. If you need to get right with another brother or sister in Christ, commit to do that now. This is your time.